everyone, this is Mark Stills in town, this week coming from the beach next to the pier in Brighton. A, a quiet village known for its strict religious sense of order, where no-one has taken a drug since 1780, not even a Neurofen, and most of the town is run by the Methodist Church. And, and I've actually been living here for a while. You get to tell when you've been living here who isn't used to it. One of the ways of telling, on a Sunday, if you don't live here, you might go, oh, I'm just going to pop into town. Uh, no, there's no point. There'll be the London to Brighton hovercraft race or something. The people who don't live here are the ones who sit on the lawns thinking, juggle at home. <laughs> See, this is why Brighton's different from other cities. In Leicester or Nottingham, if a 20-stone man was completely naked, covered in pink glitter, doing a tightrope walk, singing ABBA songs to a sea lion, they would probably end up on the local news. But in Brighton, we just go, oh, that's Big Mary, he does that on a Wednesday. <laughs> He's the mayor. <laughs> Also, Brighton, we all know, people come here for the wonderful landmarks, the beautiful Regency architecture, the delightful old buildings from the 18th century that are just breathtakingly glorious. And so it is just fitting, I think, that the most obvious structure of all is a pointless 500-foot concrete pole <laughs> that costs 46 million quid. But worth it, because when you go up to the top, you can see a marvellous view of a bit more of the sea than you can if you're on the ground. And, and a rusty, burnt-out pier at a slightly different angle, so it's worth it. <laughs> the I-360, amazing to think, without that structure, there would be no way of ever seeing a view of Brighton from that high up unless you walked up to the race course, which is 20 foot higher. <laughs> people have been on it? Yay! Oh no, you've all been on it! <laughs> you get a discount. Eh? It's, you get a discount. I know you get a discount, but it's stupid. <laughs> That's what the lockdown's done for us. There's a place up there where they whack you over the head with a shovel, but you get half price if you're the Hove resident. <laughs> Another way of telling someone who doesn't live here, of course, is their attitude towards the railway station. When someone doesn't live here, they might say the sentence, oh, I'd better be going, my train leaves in half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know Brighton. You can get out of Brighton from the station, you can, but it's like being in Casablanca. You have to find a man in a fez behind Costa Coffee who'll say, I can get you to Haywood's Heath, my friend, but it will cost many dollars. <laughs> And usually, after you've bought a ticket, you'll be squeezed onto a special bus that takes you to three bridges because of temporary engineering works that have happened every week temporarily since 1845. <laughs> there are, of course... There are, of course, many other historic landmarks here in Brighton, such as the roadworks outside the Odeon, <laughs> which, three weeks ago, celebrated its centenary, a hundred years. <laughs> This is a city of a 
amazingly varied architecture, but perhaps the most classic example that locals adore is not the pier that we're next to, but the wonderfully burnt out West Pier. Only in Brighton would you get half the population going, well, I actually prefer the burnt out pier. It just looks so glorious in the sunset and evocative of time and boundaries and makes us redefine our attitude towards space and eternity and existence and things that were burnt down in an insurance job. It's just wonderful. <laughs> Uh, one thing that's true of anyone who does remember it working is they'll tell you how it happened. Everyone's got their, oh, yeah, yeah, you know what it happened, right? They took out insurance, right, 20 minutes before the first flames went up, right? Dynamite was found in the air hockey machine. It had been losing a million pound a minute because some kids from Port Slade had worked out how to knock all the two bees off the edge, right? <laughs> and there was film, right, of the owner flying overhead, pouring petrol over it, but the government never released it because it would undermine the war in Iraq, you see. Chris Eubank was going to buy the old pier for a pound. Honest. <laughs> Everyone in Brighton has a Chris Eubank story. Oh, everyone. I was on the lawns, right, when he fired a cannon into the sea going, I am angry with the waves. Right. <laughs> and the Palace Pier right behind us here, a work of outstanding architectural beauty. And I love our few things on it work. <laughs> I, I love the fact that the Brighton Pier even has its own Palace Pier DJ. How low down the world of disc jockery do you have to go? How many teenagers does a DJ have to have fiddled with in the 1970s to be relegated to be the Palace Pier DJ? Stood there going, so, uh, before we play the next song, a little bit of traffic news, uh, congestion around the Dolphin Derby area at the moment, uh, holding things up, hopefully we'll be uh, on our way very soon, but in the meantime, just sit back, relax, this is Right Said Fred with Deeply Dippy. Uh, <laughs> but the quality of Brighton that is most complained about by visitors is the thing that it can't do anything about. Pebbles. Visitors. Why are there pebbles? It's a pebbly beach. It's natural. You might as well say, why has Brighton got a sea? Now I can't drive out to the wind farm. <laughs> it, it does have a, a certain image, of course, Brighton, as I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, I asked local residents on Twitter what they thought of Brighton. Somebody said, everyone there dresses like it's Reading Festival in 2002. And, <laughs> And someone else sent me a front-page headline from the Argus that said, Police confirm Brighton has a cannabis factory in every street. <laughs> right. Now, anywhere else, that would cause a slight sense of shame. But here, that's probably on the estate agent notes, isn't it? <laughs> this is the sort of thing you find only in Brighton. I saw a poster in the Hanover region with huge purple letters in a bedroom window that said... Please bring up racism at the dinner table. <laughs> in Julie Birchall's book, she says, one can easily imagine Hanover people throwing away goji, akai and nonny berries into the bin, though in Hanover they would probably be the names of their offspring. <laughs> um, um, according to the cheeky guide of Brighton, in the Grey's pub, I overheard someone say she started a four-year aromatherapy course. That's two years for each nostril. And... <laughs> And there are pubs like the King and Queen's where they ask for your ID and if you're over 21, they don't let you in. This is... It's, and this is such a unique place because this is where you find the drink that is the essence of Brighton to Acker. This is... 
an Italian liqueur made from brandy, vanilla, citrus, fig and butterscotch because the landlord of the St James's Tavern brought some in the 1990s and it took off across the city and there's nowhere else in the world where they drink it, including Italy, because of course Brighton isn't going to drink something that's drunk in other places. That's not cool, is it? And there's one local blog that explains its appeal. It says, The liqueur was popular during Italy's Renaissance period and the fact Da Vinci may have sunk to acre as he created some of the finest art in history brings a gravitas to the lads on tour necking shots on West Street, dressed as teenage mutant ninja turtles. I, and I am really... <clears throat> I'm sorry, I've had quite a cough the last few days and I can't taste it. In 1997, Brighton and Hove were merged and in 2000 became a city altogether. And did anybody notice any difference? No. There's no... The town hall, I think the town hall sums up the difference. Brighton has this glorious yellow building with grand columns and a big open square. And Hove Town Hall is like a prison built in the 1960s <laughs> in Kazakhstan that's being investigated by Amnesty International. Uh, Brighton gets all the stories. Apparently, Rod Stewart got someone pregnant right there under the pier. Ian Fleming wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang on the seafront. Of course he did. It's about a flying car with a mind of its own. You don't write that unless you've done some ketamine that you've, that you've scored off a bloke in a huge jumper outside the coalition bar. The, the famous have always been attracted to Brighton. And this is what began to make Brighton, because as Brighton became fashionable, George, Prince of Wales, would visit, and over the next 40 years, he ordered the building of the pavilion just over there. The tourist guide tells us, this majestic structure, flowing with worldly delights, conveys all that is finest in human endeavour and pursuits. Although, personally, I prefer the burnt-out pavilion up Rottingdean that's a pile of rubble and ash that looks amazing in the sunset. To start with, as a young man, Prince George wanted the pavilion to attract women. That's why he used it. So it was quite high stakes for him, but he tried to lure Mary Hamilton there, started seeing the actress Mary Robinson, fell in love with a woman called Maria Fitzherbert. And there's a section in the book, Life of Brighton, about their days out that says, the Prince and Maria Fitzherbert were frequent visitors to the theatre. In 1793, the great sensation in Brighton was the celebrated fencer, the transvestite Chevalier Dion, who fought a guard from a regiment in Brighton wearing a white satin petticoat. That was theatre in Brighton in the 1793. Of course in 1793 the hit of the town was a transvestite sword fighter and it was probably reviewed in the Argus as being disappointingly mainstream. The, the, the Prince ran up debts of £20 million in today's money that Parliament voted to pay off out of public funds. And he was interviewed at one point about his lavish lifestyle and sexual habits and insisted it couldn't have been him because that day he was at the Pheasant Express in Woking. <laughs> Maybe it was worth it because the prince was able to have his dalliances away from the gaze of the king. So Brighton earned a reputation and wealthy people from London started coming here to have illicit affairs. Now, that's brilliant about Brighton because other cities are built on boring industries like shipbuilding or the docks but not Brighton. No one needed to make anything or do anything useful because that would have spoilt the place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so at this point 
I'd like to introduce Jeff. Is Jeff here with us? Hello, yes. good afternoon. Yes. <laughs> now, Jeff, you may know because you conduct the tours around the pavilion, is that right? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, is it true that Buckingham Palace has cleared stuff out and sent it here? Basically, yes. I mean, at present, the palace is going under about 10 years of massive restoration work and we're looking after their goodies for them. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds to me like the Queen's gone, look at this old shit, send it to Brighton. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we put it on Gumtree? <laughs> the most exciting thing now is Royal Loans very kindly allowed us to have back the original artefacts that belong to the pavilion. They're mind-blowing. I went round it again yesterday. And when you go round, 20 million, even in the 1780s, seems cheap. These rooms are extraordinary. Queen Victoria must have gone, bloody hell, this is a bit much, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> he had a 46-piece band, which he would call on whenever he fancied music. It was like the world's first Spotify. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to ask you this, Jeff, because uh, everyone... Nick stuff from work, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> what you got? <laughs> Thank you very much, It is spectacular and very bright, because it's not a miserable, boring royal residence like Windsor Castle. It's got these glorious, exotic round towers that are presumably the reason that the English Defence League put up a photo of it and said, look at the size of this mosque on the main road to Brighton. <laughs> which is wonderful. Why is there a mosque on the Labour conference poster? I said, I think there's an element of genius in the way the English Defence League are thinking here. To go through Brighton, past the drag bars of Kemp Town and the seafront of Saturday night and think, this place is under Shavaya law. <laughs> After the Regency period, Brighton calmed down a bit. The Life of Brighton, the book there, tells us the next king, William IV, when he was at the pavilion, at dinner, never drank more than a pint of sherry. And, uh, <laughs> and in a footnote, it says he was in the habit of chasing it down with shots of tuacca. And... Uh, <laughs> And then came the railways, which transformed the town again. The journey from London by horse usually took four and a half hours, but the railway opened in 1832, and this is true, according to a book there, Brighton Diaries, when the railway was opened, this took the average journey time up to six hours. <laughs> of course it did! And you know that on that journey, at one point, passengers were approaching the driver to say, may we be informed as to why we have stopped? You are at three bridges, sire. <laughs> From here, you 250 souls will be crammed into barrels and rolled down the A23. <laughs> uh, according to Secret Brighton, one success of the railways was when the new line opened, criminals flooded from London. They bought cockfighting, prostitution, pickpockets, muggers, smugglers, burglars and gangs. And these activities only declined when someone put a poster in their window saying, please bring up cockfighting at the dinner table. <laughs> In the 1950s, it was a different sort of seedy call here. Writers and actors came here to work. Noel Coward made his famous statement, Ah, oh, dear Brighton, full of peers, queers and racketeers. And he updated this later to, Ah, oh, Brighton, full of greens, queens and 60 quid for an egg cup full of ethically sourced coffee beans. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that could only happen in Brighton in the 60s. There was a bubble car factory here. But in 1966, Hollywood star Errol Flynn's mum 
who was living here, was run over by a bubble car coming out of the factory. That's such a Brighton thing to happen. A celebrity death here could never be something as mundane as an overdose. It would have to be the Dalai Lama got his robe caught in the door of the Volks Railway and was dragged to the marina and was then reincarnated as a seagull on the ruins of the West Pier. Uh, alongside this sort of thing in the 1960s, there was an undercurrent of violence that became quite famous. Mods fighting rockers on the beach, gangs as in the Brighton Rock book. And a bit of that's still here. I know someone who moved to Elm Grove and on the first night they went to the pub and they said there were three people in there. One asked if I wanted to buy a diamond. The next one told me he'd just got out of jail for being a mercenary. And then both of those said about the third one, see him, his dad's name's Billy Onions. <laughs> but the other side of Brighton was still here. This is right, 1964. A woman was fined £15 for being topless in the Western Road. She said, I was hoping to set a trend as a topless clairvoyant reading dog's paws. <laughs> and it was always going to be Brighton that had Britain's first nudist speech. Uh, this happened in 1980 after councillor Eileen Jakes tried to persuade the other councillors to approve it by bringing in topless pictures of herself to the council meeting. <laughs> and, And, oh, I just got a particularly strong waft of skunk then. <laughs> <laughs> Another one of them, and I'm going to be doing the whole thing again. Uh... So this is what's special about Brighton. In most city centres, you see and hear unorthodox things on a Saturday night and at one in the morning. But I've walked along King Edward Street and physically bumped into a man who was wearing only a white thong. So my arms brushed his buttocks and it was 9.30 on Monday morning, two hours before the first shop opens in the lanes. It... In the book LGBT Brighton and Hove, which I have there, it says... In the 1920s and 30s, St James's Tavern in Madeira Place and the New Pier Tavern were popular with sailors and gay men and lesbians. And there were tea dances at the Royal Albion, just there by the pier, tea dances for lesbians. In 1947, the aquarium that's now Sea Life was a transvestite bar. Oh, this is brilliant about Brighton. Someone tells you, you know where Pret-a-Manger is? That was an S&M post office in the 1930s. <laughs> So, to prove my point of the glamour of Brighton's gay and drag scene, I am very proud to introduce Dave Lynn, one of Brighton's, if not Brighton's, premier drag act. Can I, call you? Can I call you? Sir? Um, some people, believe it or not, may not know exactly what happens with the drag act. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're obviously a bit shy, Dave, so can you sort of just... <laughs> I used to be gay and then I saw you, I'm changing my mind, but... Um, this is the sort of thing. I wanted a man of steel and I got you. <laughs> and now on Radio 4, Dave Lynn's in town. So, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I think this is my spot. Um, oh, no, with diversity, he's going to get yeah, my Radio 4 well, slot. Well, sat for an hour watching... <laughs> <laughs> what did you expect? Gone. No. What happened? What? So what happens when you're doing well, um, lip syncing and? Not anymore. It used to be right. very famous a lip sync. I was a lip sync act because I fell in love with Liza Minnelli when I was young, and so I entered a talent contest in school, and I was going out with this girl at the time. <laughs> All right, don't judge me. <laughs> I can't say the next line because it's radio. Uh, can I? 
Yeah, go on. Uh, I couldn't get her vagina up my bottom, so we split up. Don't put that out, that's fine. <laughs> Just after the archers and before the shipping forecast, it'll be fine. But we did get cash back. <laughs> um, a, a drag act's been furloughed. Is that a sexual thing? Yes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I was furloughed two weeks ago, but he never called back. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, this is. I want, I, want, I want all the shows to be like this. <laughs> Thanks for asking me. I've forgotten your name. <laughs> Sandy Toxic. Uh, the marvellous thing, I think what I love about it is the gay scene just blends in as it should. Like, I went in the Affinity Bar on St James's Street, I think it is, and it's my favourite experience ever in a gay bar because it looked as if it had changed about ten years ago from being an old pub where people just suck pints on their own and then it became a gay bar with a drag act. And lots of the customers just stayed the same. They just thought, I can't be bothered to go anywhere new. And they just carried on. So there was a drag queen on stage in front of these shops tiny purple and green streamers and pink fluorescent lighting and she's got this huge wig and this tiny short skirt and tights and she's going, don't stop me now. And there's like two old women with a Yorkshire terrier and three blokes just supping bites. And she's come to one of the blokes who was an old bloke who had the newspaper and he's looking at the racing and she's come down and gone, don't stop me now and given him the mic and he's just gone, I'm having such a good time. <laughs> Carried on. Some of them do get a bit wilder. Uh, I saw a review of Legends Bar that went, expect to go home with a bad back and dirty knees. Have they got a rugby pitch out the back? Got... All the bus routes are named after sort of people with a, a Brighton connection. One of the bus routes is named after Daisy and Violet Hilton. Now, in most towns, you'd think, ah, maybe they were sisters who set up allotments. Daisy and Violet were Siamese twins brought up in a flat over the Queen's Arms who toured America performing in burlesque clubs playing saxophone while on roller skates and each of them married a gay man. <laughs> Top that, Eastbourne. I don't think it is like that. I think that none of this really is... It's a false view of what Brighton is. Most of Brighton isn't drag bars or blokes in a thong on a Monday morning. It's people who live in estates on Morscombe or in Portslade. But what makes Brighton distinct is that no-one in any of them places is fussed that there are drag bars or blokes in a thong on a Monday morning. So, this is the point which I am very, very pleased to introduce you to someone who I think is the personification of Brighton, above all else, Caroline Lucas. And your job, Caroline, is? My job is the wonderful privilege of representing Brighton Pavilion in the House of Commons as the Green MP. And, and you seem to be popular. You're obviously doing the job very badly. That's not <laughs> a politician's brief. So, first question I've got to ask you, Caroline, as a true figure of Brighton, is this. Say you go on question time, that's quite stressful. Do you have a few shots of Chewacca before you go on? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
you represent, you know, Patcham and places like that. That's all your area, which isn't at all like the sort of image of Brighton. But you must get some really eccentric people coming up to you for help. I, I do. I mean, I get some really serious problems as well. But in amongst all of that, I get some extraordinary letters. Letters, for example, that often contain an awful lot of photos of people's random body parts. And I'm not quite sure why. I think maybe calling an MP's advice session, calling it a surgery, I think causes confusion. <laughs> and people expect some kind of medical intervention, which I am entirely unqualified to perform, so I don't. But that's one thing. Seagulls is the other. People hate oh, the seagulls. No. And my very first surgery, I had a lovely gentleman come in. He seemed so nice. But what he wanted me to do was to get the fire service to go around and find all the nests and prick all the eggs to stop the seagulls from growing more. But, <laughs> apart from being sort of a little bit impractical, do you think in any way if you did that, that might have compromised your position as leader of the Green Party? <laughs> yeah, but he did ask very, very nicely. I was very tempted. <laughs> when people send sort of crazy letters, do you reply with on House of Commons notepaper? You know, thank you very much for your enlightening picture. Absolutely, and actually people do send some extraordinary things. Like, it sometimes feels a bit like my office is the dragon's den, because loads of people want me to look at their inventions. So we have some mad ideas that people draw and send in. I mean, obviously they're not, they're not really mad. Of course, they're terribly serious, and I respond <laughs> and tell them that's very, very useful to know. One more question that I want to ask you. I think this is a serious political question. I think we're serious people here. So Brighton obviously has gone in the opposite direction to the country as a whole in recent years. Is there a case for Brighton claiming independence? Yes. <laughs> and, you know, we kind of... We almost already did back in 2015 when people woke up after that general election and realised that Brighton and Hove was literally this little kind of island of green and red. So we declared the People's Republic of Brighton and Hove. We looked very, very fondly at requests from Lewis for a kind of non-violent invasion of Lewis. We thought we would probably do that. You know, at the time, Kemp Town was still held by the Tories. They wanted to seek asylum. So we were going to look very, very, very kindly towards that as well. So absolutely independence, but also probably making an alliance with Scotland as well. I think we need to do that. Okay. Thank you very much for Marvel's Caroline Lucas. Uh, in, uh, <laughs> everything in Brighton, it seems to me, has a slight Brighton tinge. The Duke of York cinema is a normal cinema, but with a giant model of stripy legs on the roof. The Table Tennis Club trains prisoners and its Down Syndrome team won a medal in the World Table Tennis Down Syndrome Championship. One year, the... Uh, one year, the most popular attraction in Brighton was the sewer. The bus routes that are named after various celebrities, Virginia Woolf and the Siamese twins, there's another one named after Prince Kropotkin, the 19th century Russian anarchist, because he lived in Kemptown, where he probably went in the affinity bar and sang, I'm having such a good time, <laughs> while making a bomb. And so I will leave you, Brighton, with a charming section of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, in which Ian Fleming sums up the magic of the city where he wrote his famous book with this little part, the one part of the book that actually refers to Brighton, and thanks to him for that. I'll leave you with this bit. Caractacus Pot pulled the lever to his side and Jeremy and Jemima sat back with glee as the wings unfolded and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang took to the air. Clump went the undercarriage. Not to worry, said Caractacus, it's only Errol Flynn's mum. <laughs> Watch out, screamed Jemima, and Chitty swerved suddenly, just missing some flying pedestrians that hadn't noticed they were in the flying car lane. The... 
I'm sick of pedestrians, said Caractacus. I'm going to bring it up at the dinner table. <laughs> Look out, screamed Jeremy. We're headed towards some sort of expensive, unnecessary, upright pier thing. But it was too late. Chitty crashed into the I-360 and set it on fire. That looks much better, said the people of Brighton. Now it's ruined, it looks lovely in the sunset. But what are we going to do with Chitty, they all said. I'd like to buy it for a pound, said a man. <laughs> Thanks very much, Brighton. Mark Steele's In Town was written by Mark Steele with additional material by Pete Sinclair produced on the beach in Brighton by Carl Cooper. It was a BBC Studios production. <laughs>